Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check, Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you fan, word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key It's following the Bible storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts, he finishes with dedication A work of art, from Genesis to Revelation From God's creation To man's fall to redemption to consummation His designs and structure each time will fluster What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest greatest story story ever ever told told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see the importance of biblical theology yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. And the spirit for guidance and direction Biblical theology is like protection From ourselves and our improper reflections So we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections Otherwise we will chop it into sections And not make the connections like the doctrine of election And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat If our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep Theology is like the root of a tree Which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be And by God's grace he'll breathe on us with his breath Lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless And we'll experience true peace within our death Because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology Another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, 
and we got a good show lined up for you tonight. We've been waiting to been waiting to do this show for for quite some time actually, so we were happy to uh, finally be able to make it happen. So we'll talk about more about that in a few minutes. Uh, just want to welcome everyone. Uh, feels like it's been a while since I've done done the show. I think uh, my wife hosted a, a, a show with Dr. Cordlin. Uh, on monotheism, actually the origin of monotheism, which was a very informative show. Uh, and then I think we had a couple weeks off, but we're back, and uh, I've got a couple announcements real quick. Uh, if you guys have not liked our Facebook page, I would strongly suggest you do that. Uh, on that page, we put articles, videos, different links up, uh, as well as our podcast. And uh, I've said for a long time, the thing that makes uh, theology matters unique is uh, certainly not me, <laughs> uh, but the, the quality of guests that we get. We get some, some amazing, amazing guests. We've had uh, Dr. Geisler, Norm Geisler on. We've had Paul Copan on the show. Uh, a host of people from the seminary uh, that I attend, Southern Evangelical, uh, as well as some, some folks from Biola. And we have hosted several debates uh, between Christians and atheists. We did one about a month back with uh, Shandon Guthrie uh, versus a gentleman who runs the Agnostic Atheist page. Very, very informative debate. Uh, I would suggest people really listen to that. I believe uh, Shandon did a very good job showing the bankruptcy of the uh, atheist uh, epistemology, how they know certain things to be true. So I would definitely uh, suggest you guys check that room uh, or check them podcasts out. Uh, we have uh, big announcements coming up here the end of the month. We're going to be hosting a debate, another debate. This will be like the 10th one or so that we've, we've hosted uh, with uh, Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience. And he runs, the, he runs that television show, um, I think he's the, the president or something to that effect. Um, he's a big wig within the Atheist Society uh, out there in Austin, Texas. And uh, he does a show called uh, The Atheist Experience with a, a group of other atheists. And uh, it's, a public sh it's a show on public access where they basically challenge theists and other people to call in and give evidence for their beliefs. Uh, he's been on the show one time before. Uh, we did a debate between him and uh, my friend John Ferrer on whether or not uh, there was good evidence that God existed. Uh, but this debate coming up uh, towards the end of this month is actually going to be on abortion. Uh, we are going to have uh, our friend Clinton Wilcox, who is on staff with LTI, which is Scott Cleasendorf's group, and he is going to be um, representing the pro-life side, I guess you would say. And uh, so... Be looking out for that debate. That'll be uh, the end of this month. That that'll be that'll be a good debate. So, so without further ado, what I want to do is uh, for the first 20 minutes of the show or so, uh, I'm going to bring a, a friend on, and I uh, wanted to play a, a clip from Richard Dawkins where he's talking about religion, and uh, get some of his some of his thoughts. Uh, after that, the, the show tonight is is going to be. Uh, we're going to look at basically um, morality, whether or not morality is objective, whether it's relative, 
And my friend Steve Garofalo wrote a book, and it's titled Right for You, But Not for Me, A Response to Moral Relativism. So we're going to be getting into that hot and heavy uh, right around uh, 20 minutes from now. So stick with us for that. Uh, but now let me go ahead and introduce my uh, my good friend and brother that I was wanting to bring on, Sean Holloway. He is a student of Christian apologetics at Luther Rice. He's also a, uni- uh, a youth pastor at Elizabeth Baptist Church, Marietta, husband to Paige and father to three children, Peyton, uh, who's 13, Bryce 12, and Bailey 10. And... Uh, I'll let him talk for a few seconds or a minute or so about how, kind of how he came to know the Lord, and, uh, and then we'll kind of jump into this audio clip. Sean, are you there? I am there, Devin. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Can you hear me okay? I'm doing great. I can hear you great. All right. Wonderful. Welcome to the show. You've you've uh, been, a, been a listener for a long time, and... And I thought, you know, I know you're a very knowledgeable guy, so I thought it would be good to get you on the show. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It's an honor. It's uh, Yeah, I've been listening to you for a long time and uh, sat there in your living room with you one day while you are doing it. So, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed your show for quite a while now. An honor to be uh, among those those great honored guests you've had on there. Oh, yeah, man. We're, we're definitely, definitely glad to have you. Did I leave anything out about your introduction? Or? No, that's... that's uh, that's pretty much the the gist of it. Okay, good deal. Uh, take a take a minute or so and tell us how you you came to Christ. Okay. Um, well, I grew up uh, here in the South in uh, the Bible Belt, and if you had asked me if I was a Christian growing up, I I would have said yes that I, that I was. Um, but actually, in my early twenties, I was actually listening to a radio show much like this. Um, podcast kind of format and um the speaker on there said imagine that you have died and gone to heaven and everybody that you know now or that you've ever known uh, imagine that they're there in heaven and you uh, can speak to them see them hug them whatever who would be the first person you would want to see and then he paused and i thought about it came up with my answer during the pause and I concluded that it would be my grandmother. I would want to see my grandmother because I loved her uh, dearly, and I wish that she would got to meet my wife, and I wish that she could have uh, been the influence to my children that she was to me. And uh, So I missed her dearly, loved her tremendously, and that's who I decided on. And the, and the speaker comes back, and he says, uh, you know, if you answered anyone other than Jesus Christ, uh, there's, a, there's a chance you may not love Jesus Christ as much as the person you mentioned. And, boy, I tell you what, that really struck me. And... uh I was offended. I was actually mad. I turned the thing off. <laughs> but over the next two days, I started asking myself if I really did love Jesus. And uh truth of the matter was, I I didn't even know Jesus. And uh, so two days later that, that night, I remember sitting in there in my living room. And uh, for the first time in my life, I had a real honest conversation with God. And I said, God, I, I don't love Jesus, and I don't know how to love Jesus. And... Um, you know, I don't know what you expect from me, but I I just don't know what to believe anymore. And uh, for the first time, I was a professing agnostic. And uh, but I tell you what, it uh, at the same time I recognized that there were people that really did love Jesus, and those people stood out in my life. Um, I remember a, a lady that 
I could I, I knew just from the way she lived her life that she she truly loved loved the Lord and uh one of the things that stood out to me was seeing her read her Bible. She read her Bible every every evening, sit by her lamp and sat by her lamp and read her Bible. And that really struck me and uh and it it reminded me that well, it reminded me that I hadn't read the Bible and so looking for these answers I started started reading the Bible and I was a I was kind of a nerd anyway, so I was kind of an insatiable reader. So anyway I started reading the Bible and it it just got to the point where I just I just was reading six to eight hours a night and um having conversations with God and and uh you know the, and I remember reading Psalm one thirty nine and, and the first time I remember reading David's prayer and recognizing what he was really saying when he said, Search my heart and know my ways he was he was asking God to reveal himself the way God sees him instead of the way that he sees him. And you know, that's I had gone through my life thinking that I I just compared myself to other people. If uh if I if my sin wasn't as bad as their sin then then I was good to go and uh and I could call myself a Christian. And the reality was is that uh I had never thought about it the way God you know, how does God see it? So I, I prayed the same prayer that David did, and boy, let me tell you, did he ever answer that prayer? I, I got a, I got a healthy dose of of seeing what my sin was in my life and the and the consequences of my sin, and and not only that, but the consequences in other people's lives that they were they were paying consequences for my sin. And over about a six month period, I tell you, it pushed me to a point of depression, and I didn't know what to do about it. And I remember back in my living room one night again except this time I was on my knees with tears just streaming down my face and calling out to God saying I I don't I don't know what to do. I don't you know I don't I don't deserve I don't deserve to live. I wasn't suicidal, but that's the way I felt. I just was worthless. And uh and that's when he kind of whispered to me, that's that's you, you have a savior and and that's why they love Jesus because they recognize what he did for them. And then for the first time in my life I recognized that that Jesus was my savior. And all of that time uh, I'd been looking for the truth and I had read the case for Christ and uh, uh, more than a carpenter, and I'd read a lot of things, you know, looking for for answers, and I'd discovered for myself that Christianity was the truth, and that and that Jesus Christ was a a real historical figure who lived and died. He was he was God, and he was man, and, and he and he bore my sins, and he paid my debt. And uh, and I just tell you what, I fell in love with Jesus, and and I haven't shut up about him ever since. <laughs> Well, we're glad that you are on our side, my friend. Very, very good, very, very powerful testimony, and that's that's it. Uh, the power of Christ has the ability to open the blind eyes and open the deaf ears and breathe life into the lifeless soul. So we are definitely yeah, he sure did. Grateful for him. Well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to play this clip by Richard Dawkins, who's a, who's a very well-known atheist. Maybe could tell, tell the people who Richard Dawkins is, Sean. I'll let you kind of explain that. Um, I would describe Richard Dawkins as a new, as a, a militant atheist. <laughs> he's uh, he's not just an atheist. He's uh, he's kind of a acrimonious, vitriolic. Atheist. He he doesn't want he doesn't want anything to do with. Uh, he believes Christianity is a, is a poison. So he's um, he's pretty ardent ardently opposed to it, and uh, he's not afraid to to say that even even if he, use, he needs to offend somebody to do it. He's okay with it. That's that's exactly right. And, and what we're going to hear in this clip coming up, 
there will definitely be probably some uh, some Christians that are that are somewhat offended. Uh, but you know, as me, me and Sean have gone over this clip before, uh, we looked at it a little bit earlier, and, and he was saying he he agrees with a lot of it uh, of what what you're going to hear, and we'll kind of break that down and kind of explain what we mean by that. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and play this clip. It's about four minutes long, and uh, we'll come back and take a look at it. At this point, I need to acknowledge the remarkable taboo against speaking ill of religion. And I'm going to do so in the words of the late Douglas Adams, a dear friend who, if he never came to TED, certainly should have been invited. He was? He was, good. I thought he must have been. He begins this speech, which was uh, tape recorded in Cambridge shortly before he died. He begins by explaining how science works through the testing of hypotheses that are framed to be vulnerable to disproof. And then he goes on, I quote, Religion doesn't seem to work like that. It has certain ideas at the heart of it which we call sacred or holy. What it means is, here is an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. <laughs> Why should it be that it's perfectly legitimate to support the Republicans or Democrats, this model of economics versus that versus that, Macintosh instead of Windows, but to have an opinion about how the universe began, about who created the universe, no, that's holy. So we are used to not challenging religious ideas. And it's very interesting how much of a furore Richard creates when he does it. He meant me, not that one. Everybody gets absolutely frantic about it because you're not allowed to say these things. Yet when you look at it rationally, there is no reason why those ideas shouldn't be as open to debate as any other, except that we've agreed somehow between us that they shouldn't be. And that's the end of the quote from Douglas. In my view, not only is, is science corrosive to religion, religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural, non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful, real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence. Now there's a typical scientific journal, the Quarterly Review of Biology, and I'm going to put together, uh, as guest editor, uh, a, a special issue on the question, did an asteroid kill the dinosaurs? And the first paper is a standard scientific paper pre presenting evidence. Iridium layer at the KT boundary, potassium argon dated crater in Yucatan, indicate that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Perfectly ordinary scientific paper. Now the next one. The president of the Royal Society has been vouchsafed a strong inner conviction that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> it has been privately revealed to Professor Huxdane that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> Professor Haldley was brought up to have total and unquestioning faith <laughs> that an asteroid <laughs> killed the dinosaurs. 
Professor Hawkins has promulgated an official dogma binding on all loyal Hawkinsians that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's inconceivable, of course. Okay, and there was that clip of uh, Dr. Dawkins. He was giving a uh, one of the talks at the TED, the TED thing, and um, yeah, as you see, he makes several. Uh, I think he makes some, some good points uh, in this, Sean. One of the one of the things that I, I noticed right off the bat, uh, it's uh, he starts kind of with that quote of, "Religious people don't think that tr their truth claims are subject to scrutiny." And, uh, you know, I, I, on one hand, you have, you, you seem to be kind of lumping all uh, religions into the same category. And I think maybe with some religions, that, that may be true. Uh, that's kind of their, their view. But historic Christianity, have, have they ever taught that truth claims such as the origin of the universe, the reliability of the Bible, the resurrection of Christ, that those things aren't something that we should be able to look at with scrutiny? Well, some, I, I, I mean, some sure have, but generally, you know, speaking historically, no, it's actually been uh, quite the opposite. We've uh, actually, the even the early scientific discoveries of uh, uh, things, you know, heliocentrism and, and a lot of the uh, the early scientists were devout Christians, and, and actually their uh, their love for science was, uh, was born out of their their desire to know more about God, um, and so no, I, I would say that I would disagree with that. And um, I think really, I think what Dawkins is doing in that in that clip is equivocating the word religion. Um, and I think that if he used the word religious anti-intellectualism instead of the word religion, I think I would agree with just about everything he says. Um, he, he, one of his quotes, he says, "Science is corrosive to religion, and religion is corrosive to science." Um, and I think again, if he said science is corrosive to religious anti-intellectualism, and religious anti-intellectualism is corrosive to religion or to science, uh, I would certainly agree with that. Yeah, and that's that's what he does. He just equates uh, anti-intellectualism and religion. As the same thing, and uh, and it's not. How, however, let me kind of in defense of uh, Dawkins a little bit. Uh, did you get to see the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate? I have. I have read the transcripts. I haven't watched the debate. Okay, there's a portion in that debate where uh, I think they were taking questions from the audience, and uh, one of the questions that came up uh, to both of them, Ken Ham and Bill Nye, was, uh, "What if any evidence?" would change your mind? Mm -hmm. Is there anything that could demonstrate Christianity is, is false? And Ken Ham just stimmered and stammered and stumbled yeah. and he, he couldn't answer that at all. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, there is. There is. You could, if somebody produced the bones of Jesus, that would mm -hmm. disprove Christianity, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. Um, as Dr. Dr. William Lee Craig has pointed out, I think it was in his debate with Shabir Ali, if you can demonstrate that the doctrine of the Trinity has lo is logically contradictory, well, then that, yeah. would, uh, that would disprove Christianity because logical contradictions cannot be true. So, mm -hmm. you know, 
and I like Ken Ham, and I'm you know I'm a young Earth creationist. I'm not kind of the militant like them, uh, but you know Dawkins has a point when he says that kind of stuff. You know, if we're putting forth truth claims about the origin of the universe, the resurrection, the reliability of the Bible, these type of things, then you know they're they're open to scrutiny, aren't they? Or they have to be at least be able to be falsified somehow. Absolutely, and and what I think a lot of people like like just like Ham did in that debate, is something they overlook, uh, in my opinion, is uh, the fact that the falsifiability of Christianity is, is a strength of Christianity. The fact that, that it can, uh, that it is um, eligible, or, uh, you know, I'm not, not, that's probably not the right word, but it's, uh, it's falsifiable, but it's not false. Uh, that's actually a strength of Christianity. So uh, there are several religions that aren't falsifiable. They're just... Uh, uh, deniable, but uh, that's actually a strength of Christianity. And absolutely, there are there are things that the bones of of Jesus. Um, you know, there are things that that if th- if they were produced, then Christianity would be false. And uh, you know that Michael Lacona points to the resurrection. He's he's one of the uh, uh, leading uh, apologists on the Christian on the, on the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, he makes the point that uh, that's really the 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 key. A uh, pivotal piece of apologetic evidence for the Christian faith, and even Paul makes that point. And you just alluded to it, where uh, you know if, if if it didn't happen, then our faith is in, is futile. And um, uh, but there is evidence to support it, so it's it's not that's, something that's we, right. we accept with blind faith. Let me let me touch on a few more points here before we bring uh, our guest Steve Garofalo on. Uh, one of the things Dawkins says is uh, religion. Uh, teaches people to be satisfied without reasons or without explanation. Uh, you know, I just think this is a total straw man. I, I really do. I think um, uh, if you look at the modern branches of science, almost I think all of them were started by theists, and most of them were Bible-believing theists at that. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to find the mind of God. They weren't somehow, you know, dissatisfied with, you know, we don't need to worry about gravity or any of these other scientific discoveries because, after all, God did it. You know, well, of mm-hmm. course God did it, but they, they, they're trying to find the mind of God and how did God do these things. So I think when Dawkins says, you know, those those type of things, that, um, you know, religion, there may be true of some religions, but I don't think it's fair to lump all religions into that category. What would you say about that? Well, I immediately thought of J.P. Moreland's book, Love Your God with All Your Mind. Um, have you read that? Oh, oh man, it's one, of, it's one of my favorite ones. And actually, the again, that, that religious anti-intellectualism, that, that's kind of what he, he speaks about in his book. And, and again, if that's the case, if we're talking about the anti-intellectualism, which uh, Christianity is, you know, in the last 100 years is, is guilty of it, if that's what he's referring to is that specific religious anti-intellectualism in, in any religion, if he's saying that teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural non-explanation and blinds them to uh, real explanations, then yeah, I, I agree with him. But to say that, that, just, that the Christian faith, that, that just believing in Christianity causes that, well, that's just that's a false dichotomy. So no, no truth to that at all. You made a good point. This is within the last hundred years. You know, but if right. you look before that, some of the greatest thinkers, the greatest uh, theologian and philosopher on American soil, Jonathan Edwards, 
some of the mm-hmm. greatest thinkers in, in in the church. You know, I think of uh, you know Saint yeah. Thomas Aquinas, which Richard Dawkins in his book The God Delusion, you know, he dedicates the whole page and a half to answering Aquinas, and it's like you know whether you agree with the with the Christian faith or not, it would be like me writing off everything Anthony Flew has written in a page. You know, that's just that's that's ridiculous. That's not being sincere or trying to really seek truth or really understand uh, what's being said. You know, come on, the guy has written volumes and volumes of uh, serious theological and philosophical works, and to just, you know, dismiss it in a page and a half is yeah. is ridiculous. Let me ask you this real quick it's gonna, as, we, uh, as we close out here. He said one of the things that also religion teaches is we should trust without evidence. Christianity teaches hmm. that we should trust without evidence. Is that what faith is in, in the Christian use of the term? Well, just like I would say he was equivocating uh, religion, I think he's doing the same thing with the word faith. Um, and, you know, but I, I want to say, again, and, and, and what's, what's kind of uh, risen here in the last hundred years or so, I agree with him. There, there, is, a, there is kind of a, a, a modern... Uh, mentality in, in the church, uh, among several in the church, that it's kind of this idea that, that the more evidence we have, the less room we have for faith, um, that they're kind of like diametrically opposed to each other on a, you know, one's on one side, one's on the other, and the more reason we have, the less faith we have. And there's a lot of Christians that do look at it that way. Um, but I think that's I think that's really, I think that's going, that's water under the bridge, really. I think it's 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 passing by. We're, we're getting to a uh, a point where uh, where people are starting to appreciate that they're they're definitely uh, not diametrically opposed, and and the the faith described in the Bible is is definitely not a blind faith. Um, you and I are both involved with uh, with Ratio Christi, the college uh, apologetics programs, and their motto. I love their motto is no more blind faith. And uh, one of the things that Moreland points out in his book is the is the danger of that, and and one of, and and part of that is um, that it uh, it causes a misunderstanding of what faith is. Uh, that that anti-intellectualism causes us to misunderstand that. And uh, and I think I think Dawkins is just basing his his entire uh, that entire clip is based on that premises. But that certainly doesn't describe every Christian. And actually, I would say it, it, it's it's not. Uh, it's not the way that the church is headed. It's not the direction the church is headed in. It's, I think the church is heading away from that, actually. I think I think you could be right. I remember last time you, you back when you came came here it was to go to the, the National Apologetics Conference, and that thing was sold out, absolutely sold out. And so yeah, uh, I think there's definitely been with. I think we live in a time with some of the greatest thinkers uh, of the Christian faith. So we're this is a, it's an exciting time to be a Christian. So we you know, we want to love the Lord with all our mind. But Sean, appreciate you coming on, brother. We'll have you on again and uh do a whole show next time with you. And uh appreciate you giving up your time. Hey man, I really appreciate it. I, I I love getting to talk about the Lord and getting to do it with a lot of people and you guys especially, hey it's great. I appreciate it. Not a problem. And we'll we'll have you on again. I appreciate it, bro. All right, thanks a lot. All right, God bless. All right, so what we'll do is we'll take a break uh, for a minute or two and about a two-minute break, and then when we come back, we will have uh, Steve Garofalo on, 
and uh, we are going to be looking at moral relativism, and we're going to be going over his new book, so be sure to stay with us. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. Matters with the Palouse, and we're going to shift gears now and bring on my good friend Stephen Garofalo. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Steve. He has earned a master's in apologetics with an emphasis in Islamic studies from the great Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, in May of 2007. He speaks at conferences and churches on religious and moral issues and is founder of the National Apologetics Training Center. And so tonight we're going to be looking at his new book, uh, Right for You But Not for Me, A Response to Moral Relativism. Steve, are you there? Hey, yes, sir. How are you doing, Mr. Devin? I'm good, man. Great to hear your voice again. You have been very patient with my blunders of missing the uh, schedule up, and uh, I want to say hello, send a big hello from my family to yours, uh, your uh, wonderful wife, Melissa, and uh, your beautiful little girl, Eliana. I think I said her name right, so our, our yeah, children, you your children. Well, I, I appreciate that, brother, I really do. It's great to have you on. I wanted to, wanted to have you on and, and wanted to pick your brain for quite some time. Well, I appreciate that. I've been wanting to get on, and it's great to be here. And I uh, appreciate you picking up the book. I, I'm glad at least you liked it. didn't uh, yeah. put it in a circular file. That's a positive start. So. 
did I did I leave anything out of the uh, out of the introduction? I think you covered it. Uh, as soon as you had said the SES stuff, I think that was good. <laughs> there you go. You got there it. You Thank go. you. Let me ask you, Steve. Why should we even care about this issue? Why is it even? Why should Christians even engage as to whether uh, this issue of truth and, and whether it's objective or not? Why should we even care about that as Christians? Yeah, it's a you know, excellent question. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of I think it's uh, you can answer that question in a number of ways. Uh, that's a, but I think um, I think the first thing we could you can say about it is is that you know more relativism relativism in general or more relativism. Where do you want to take that? You want to take more relativism or, or just relativism in general to answer that question as a starting point. Uh, I'm sorry. Say that. Say that one more time. Yeah. Uh, little, what, uh, well, let me here. let me go ahead and answer. Yeah. Uh, first of all, everyone is an absolutist when it comes to relativism. I'm speaking in relativism in general now. Every, everybody is an absolutist when it comes to relativism, generally speaking. Okay. So if you go to the yeah, if you go to the bank, right, and you and you ask them to pull a million dollars out, and uh, they say, Mr. Palou, but you you don't have a million dollars in your checking account well you say well it's in that case it would be true not right but true for me that there's a million dollars but not true for you could you imagine a world if you can do that so (laughs) yeah you would end up uh you know in today's world you can do that by the way you just you may get escorted out by you know somebody with earplugs and very large weapon on their side or you know and end up with free room and board at the local prison but you know, so the reality, reality, and, and, and relativism don't mix all that well. And I think when you're speaking of more relativism, uh, you know, well, let me let me expound on the difference between relativism and um, and truth. Relativism is descriptive. Relativism is a is a kissing cousin of ethics. It's the same same thing, really. Actually, in, in other words, it's descriptive. Uh, ethics and uh, ethics say what we ought to do. So if you're talking about relativism, if you're saying something's relative, you're, you're describing really what ought to be, and it falls into the same category. That Whereas truth, so if you say it's relative versus absolute, those are descriptive terms. If you're speaking truth, then you're speaking true-false, black-white, and that's prescriptive. Or, I'm sorry, that's I, relativism and ethics are prescriptive, truth is descriptive. So in other words, you ought not to... Uh, you ought not to kill somebody. You ought not to lie or steal. That's a, a prescriptive measure. So you're, you're you're kind of explaining what you ought not do. If you say, right. you know, I have stolen something or I've killed somebody, well, then that's a true, false. You either did steal or kill or lied or you did not. So, okay. you know, liberals, from, yeah, from a from a theological or from a progressive or political perspective in our modern world, from an atheistic atheist's perspective, you know, liberals in general tend to deny moral absolutes uh, for one, on one hand, then they, but everything they say, notice, is absolutely true or absolutely right. So, but they do that, and and many unknowingly, at least consciously, they they choose that road because they they want their freedom. And, you know, I, I tend to say this freedom comes in three basic packages. I mean, obviously you have, you have materialism, but um, in, our, in the world, you tend to have power, um, money, and sex. 
and not everybody is privy to power, and not everyone is uh, or money. You know, not everyone has access to those things in great money. There's limited amounts of those things, but sex is for everybody. And so I, I think, especially America culture, American culture right now, doesn't want to be told any anything about how you know, sexual freedom. I mean, if you look at it, when we talk about moral relativism, moral relativism covers anything that's moral, which is about every area of life. But sexuality seems to be front and center. And it really does matter. Destroying our families, destroying our, our government, destroying the church now. Right. At the not, at your uh, the National Apologetics Training Center that you run, I guess you probably teach on these and, and other issues. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks, Devin. Yeah, we we have a uh, the National Apologetics Training Center. We have five of us that are uh, speakers at at, at uh, I'll just call it NATC. Um, we have a t- we have we have a team of five well trained Christian apologetics apologists that really God has brought together to train up a new generation to be able to defend and advance the truth of God. Um, really, through apologetics and evangelism, we can't do one without the other. So we tend to provide training through seminars and just one-on-one training. We may even sometimes go into Sunday school classes. Or um, So we're working with universities and churches and, um, and other organizations, and we go in there to help equip them to be able to, to, how to give an, you know, understand how to give a, an answer for what they believe, you know, for the hope that lies within them. And I think your last caller was speaking, and you all were speaking about anti-intellectualism. And, man, I can't tell you how many times of you know, I've been in uh, in a Sunday school class, or even at church, or, or or elsewhere, and you're teaching a lesson, and somebody says to you. I remember a guy came up to me once. He says, "You know, I don't need philosophy, and I don't need theology. All I need is my Bible." And I said, "Well, do you believe in the Trinity?" And he goes, "Well, yeah." I said, "Well, you know, you better go back." I said, "Where's this? Where's this talk about? The, you tell me where's the word Trinity in the Bible?" And, and he was like, "Huh." I said, it's, that's, that's a, it's, obviously it's there, prescript, it's, it's there descript, it's described in the Bible, and it's all there. I mean, Genesis 1, right, it, it starts there, talking about in the beginning we. So we have the concept of the, of the Trinity, but it's never called the Trinity, so you can't deny theology. And that's, that's a simple example. But when you get to the college world, um, you were speaking earlier of Ratio Christi. My gosh, yeah, your kids are trained through Awana. They've got every Bible verse, you know, registered in their mind. They've been they've been raised to live it, see it, you know, eat it, drink it, and they go off to college, and then their professor com- completely just you know, just completely dresses them down in class in terms of just you know on their faith right. and just takes just takes a hit on them and, and tells them you know you must also believe and if you believe in miracles you must also believe in you know Mary Poppins and and, um, and and that kind of stuff and so yeah and the kid comes out and you know I think the statistics the common statistic is that somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of of every young person that enters the university will walk away from their faith basically in the church usually within the first uh, year of college because yeah. just you know there's an agenda there to strip them of everything they say they look it's funny how how the liberals will say yeah um you know you shouldn't be programming your children but yet they're they want to program you so it's, it's amazing <laughs> yeah. it's self-safe you know it's like don't don't program them with god but we want to program them with everything liberal you know yeah yeah for secularism that's right 
Phone lines are open, folks, at 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. If you've got a question for Steve uh, about moral relativism, whether you agree or disagree, that's fine. You don't have to agree to call in, uh, but we would uh, we'd love to talk with you. Steve, give us a brief uh, history of moral relativism. started in the most ancient uh, manuscripts that we have that talk about uh, about um, moral relativism would, would really start in, with Adam and Eve in the, in, in the garden. Uh, you're going back to the, the Genesis account, uh, oh. which you know it, you, when you when you look at the serpent and he's in the garden and he um, he's speaking with with uh, with Adam and Eve and he's and he he makes the case that well you know basically if you eat if you eat of the, of the, off this tree the fruit off this tree then then you're going to be God knows you're going to be, you know, like him, and that you're going to die. It, you know, so what does it mean to be like him, and what does it mean to die? Well, that's, you know, a half-truth is a lie, and that's typically the way moral rel- or the way relativism in general uh, works. And so, you know, it wasn't that they were going to eat the apple, take one bite, and boom, you, you croak, right? You fall over. And it, what does it mean to be like God? All of a sudden, you have all that power, and so they, you know, they. That's kind of where it started, and in, in the garden there. And then, if you take it, in my book covers, it takes it into the, the philosophical a little bit. And I, I'm, you know, I didn't get deep into philosophy for the simple reason that I didn't want to put people to sleep. So, um, what I did was I picked out some basic philosophical figures, and 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 I covered them and. You know, some of those guys. You have the ancients, and then you have the contemporaries. And in the um, in the in the contemporary, uh, you have um, you have you have pro, uh, it starts with Protagoras. He was the first sophist, uh, circa I don't know, forty-one to three twenty in that in that time range. And he was he was the first and the oldest sophist that we know of. And he coined the term. Um, he coined the term, man is the measure of all things. Now, that's a profound statement. But if you yeah. go back to the Adam and Eve, that's kind of where they were leading. If, you know, if you're going to take a, a bite of the fruit and become like God, well, then you kind of are vying for that position to be the measure of all things, or at least you want to be part of that. So right. he started with that statement. And don't forget now, the, the sophists of their day, of, the, of going back to that time period, they basically were the they were basically the the they were they they hung out with the upper elite and in the in the universities because they were influencers they wanted to basically influence people and so uh, you know to think and to change the way the masses think and so they started with the university and that's where they hung out the university and with the wealthy now not kind of around the same time period uh was a was a uh, the father of history and that's Herodotus. And, uh, he, you know, if you, if you look up Herodotus, H-E-R-O-D-O-T-U-S, he basically was the first official historian ever to exist in, in, in the face of the planet. And he wrote, um, you know, and he, he said, he, yeah, and basically in a nutshell, what he believed was, is, and he, kind of, he was a polytheist, and, and, and he believed in many gods, and you can see that come through in his work. But he, he made a point, and he said that, you know, he basically made the point in in his uh, in through his 
writings that there's a, polarity, a, a plurality of moral makers, which obviously there's many gods. And that's many gods versus one god. And I think if you go back and you look at some of the of his writings, you know you'll have you'll have um, one, and, and it goes through, and, and you can see how that affected his worldview. For in other words, he's talking about one people group going to battle with another people group in some some circumstances, and and the smaller army beats the bigger army, and so he then gives um, he gives credit for that very specific thing to just the, to basically the gods as, as opposed to God. And, and it's very interesting to see, but he gives it to the plurality of, of gods, not the gods. So anyway, so you have, you have uh, let me just summarize. You have starts in the garden. You've got Protagoras. Um, you know, God's the measure of all things. And you have Herodotus, Herodotus, who basically comes in and takes this whole idea of a plurality of moral makers, which then takes things away from one standard God, which then takes things away from one standard moral absolute, and then and then time goes on, so, and you're having people read history through that viewpoint. And then I'll just, what I do is I go up and I talk about David Hume, and I think, you know, he was a very important figure. He, he was on the scene from 1711 to 1776, and he was okay. a modern philosopher, and he is most accredited out of any other philosopher to this day of of advancing skepticism, and when I say skepticism, skepticism is about skepticism about really reality, truth, God, and the existence of God, and in 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 that is the objectivity of of morality. And what he says is objectivity can only exist objectivity versus subjectivity. So in other words, objectivity can only exist when accompanied by sensory experience. So that's a pretty profound statement because what he's saying is you know basically you can't have any kind of objective thought whether it's objective truth or objective morality uh, unless it's accompanied by one of your senses your smell touch feel right those types of things and so the example that i give (coughs) excuse me the example that i give is that if you come around my house around the holidays uh my wife just loves to bake apple pies she does if you come in my house Lucky man! Ah, oh, man! You guys are gonna have to come over. I'm telling you. And, and she, no. she, she comes. You come in my house and you go, man. It just smells so good. I mean, you come in the front door and it just smells awesome. Now, if you come in my front door and you're smelling this delicious apple pie, and you come to the kitchen, and then you hang a left and you go to the laboratory, known uh, better as the bathroom, and you notice there's an apple pie air freshener. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it, yeah. That smell that smell does not define truth. It wasn't really an apple pie. But if you want to try to eat the apple pie, air freshener, now that would be entertaining. That would be So, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but anyways, David Hume, in a nutshell, is, uh, and today he's really created skepticism about the existence of God, the existence of truth, and the existence of, and the existence of really moral absolutes. So how, let me ask you, how would he deal with, for example, the Holocaust? You know, we would say, well, the Holocaust was, was evil and, and wrong. So, I, I mean, I know that was after him, but uh, with that kind of a situation, what would he say to something like that? Because it would seem as though with him then there wouldn't be any type of prescription of you ought not do X. Is that right? Yeah, well, for, yeah, he came before the Holocaust, obviously, 
um, if you say what right. would he say about the Holocaust, if he was alive today, he he might it's say a situation he, like yeah, a situation similar to that, yeah. Yeah, he well, first of all, he might say it never happened, right? Oh yeah, that's <laughs> he, he might true. be skeptical of it. Um, right. But you're right. Uh, it, well, how would he answer it philosophically, and how he would answer it realistically would be are, are two different things. You know, mm-hmm. anybody who denies moral absolutes or absolute truth doesn't really believe in the relativism. They just they take it philosophically and morally. They'll argue the point um, simply because they don't want to give up their position of, of relativism, right. even though they're claiming it to make it. Now, let me give an example. Uh, you know, I used to, in the old days, I used to ask people, do you exist? And you know, it was never. It, I don't know. It never seemed. To, I never got seemed to get used to the answer. I'm not sure. <laughs> so perhaps he might say that. You know, I'm not sure because well, is, is absolute truth exist and does absolute morality exist? Uh, um, and I asked that to a guy uh, here who invited himself to a conversation about 15 years ago, and and I said, well, does absolute, you know, is there absolute truth exist? And I said, is murder right or wrong? And he said, depends. So I said, you know, real, you realize that under the, your belief, and I said, and I said, do you exist? And he says, I don't know, because if he says no, it's an absolute answer. If he says yes, it's an absolute answer. So, so I said, I said to him, do you realize a guy can come in here and, and shoot you right between the eyes, and he's done nothing wrong. First of all, it's right for him, but not for you. And secondly, you don't know if you exist. So really, how could you, <laughs> how could you make an yeah. argument? One was always shot or killed. But anyway, to go back to what would. What would humans say? I, 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 you know, it depends. I mean, you know, if he's married and his wife had a lot of compassion and knew a lot of Jewish people, he may just flip and say, yeah, that was a terrible thing, and of course that went on. But to say that it's right or wrong, I think he would probably, he would probably say that, he would probably say it's wrong. Yeah. I, I, I think, I guess, that's what, what I think, what I think he would say that. Yeah, well, I think what, what I'm what I'm getting at is like with his view of it, it seems to be uh, you were saying unless you can um, somehow experience that with your senses, um, I mean, you wouldn't. It seems to really knock the belief out of just you know uh, things like that. How would you how would you know from experience you know being able to prescribe certain behaviors, you know, that whether it's right or, or whether it's wrong. Seems like it's got to be a standard outside of us. Yeah, absolutely, uh, it, it does. Because if if you don't have an uh, and, and the problem is, you see, this is the problem. If you have a moral standard, not only does it cut down on your freedoms, but a moral standard logically logically mandates a moral standard maker. Okay. All right, and so and so an absolute moral standard mandates an absolute moral standard maker and the, the, oh. there's not a human being outside of Jesus Christ that is ultimately perfect <laughs> so, and, and that is right. ultimately right and so you know it, it leads there logically philosophically theologically biblically and, and truthfully and so you know people don't want to give that up again they don't you know they don't want to give up their freedom well, let me ask you this we've used the, the term truth I've been throwing that around several times what is truth? Give us give us the definition of what are we what are you talking about when you say truth? What is truth? Yeah, truth 
you know, truth is what uh, truth simply is what corresponds to reality. Um, and it, yeah, and it, 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 truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is telling it like it really is, and truth is what is. Now, let me give you some examples. Uh, you had Pilate asked Jesus, "What is truth?" in John eighteen thirty-eight. And, and he responded before even Jesus can give him an answer. So if you think about when you're speaking to somebody and you ask them a question or they ask you a question and you, you can't even get an answer and they automatically answer the question for you or they give some kind of input, what does that indicate? It, indi- it indicates yeah. that, that, that Pilate knew some truth. And so furthermore, right. by, ex- by he exonerated Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, he washed his hands clean. He's the guy's innocent. He, by exonerating yeah. Jesus... Pilate was telling it like it is, totally telling it the way it is. And by the way, if you want the truth from somebody, here's a trick. If you really want to know what the truth is, you ask people the, a question, and you kind of catch them off guard, or you ask them in a way, and you get a quick answer. For example, uh, uh, for, or, or let me explain what that is, what I mean by that. If you ask somebody a question, and they give you a quick answer, it's really what they believe. I, mean, I think if you think about that, that's true. If you give somebody, if, ask somebody a question, and they have time to think about it, then they tend to distort the truth. <laughs> wow. I mean, really. And you watch our, I mean, think about our politicians, and you get them up there, watch right. them on there. They got the teleprompter, and they, I mean, listen, watch the president, right? Oh, and you watch him, and he's thinking, he's like, he, got a teleprompter in his head and everything so if you see something as soon as he gets off they say the whole time as soon as our you know the president gets off the teleprompter they they just totally screw up right they put your foot in their mouth now right. some politicians namely vice president you know doesn't need anything to help them do that but on occasion that happens so anyway truth is like is is is, is telling it the way it is so but let me give you a better example. So I was witnessing to a radical Palestinian Muslim. Nice guy, by the way. When I say radical, radical would be, uh, would be you know, a very radical, you know, I'm not saying the guy was ready to blow something up, but he, I, 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 asked, I asked him the same question three weeks in a row, once a week. And I said, do you believe that, that apostasy that the apostasy leaving the faith of Islam is uh, punishable by death. He looked around, and he didn't even pause a second, and he looked at me right in the eyes, and he said, yes. And I asked him the second week, and he said, yes. And the third week, he said, yes. And about, I don't know, a couple, three weeks after that, he came to me and he goes, hey, Steve, he goes, you know, I really don't believe that. <laughs> Why you two, three wow. weeks to think about it? His imam probably told him, man, you... You know, you're going to get flagged for this by saying things like that. You know, you don't say things like that. And so so, so there you go. Truth is what is. It's telling it like it is. Um, truth is uh, what is. Now, you remember William Jefferson Clinton, right, our president, uh, Bill Clinton, from the past. Oh, yeah. He said, uh, so he has sex with his intern, and you remember it was a – national trial. Actually, I met Ken Starr in Washington, D.C. during the trial. Wow. Interesting conversation with him. Yeah, nice guy. I spoke with him almost half hour. Neat guy. And we were, we were talking, and um, outside of my conversation with him, if you look at Bill Clinton, look at what he did. He said, okay, uh, Mr. President, 
did you have sex with your intern, Monica Lewinsky? And he said, uh, and for our younger listeners, you know, he, this is how it went down, if you don't remember this in the court. This was nationally televised, and he and uh, you probably get it on YouTube at this point. But they said, did you have sex with your intern, which he did. And he said, well, what is sex? What is, that's I-S, what is sex? So they, they batted that around, and and they said, well, you know, they defined it, and, and they said, well, oral is oral sex then? Is oral sex sex? And then they determined that, yes, oral sex is sex. And then he asked the question, the million, billion, well, back then it was a million. Now it's, with inflation, it's a billion or a trillion-dollar question, <laughs> which is, which is, what is, is? And I remember that. I just can remember like this. And the whole country just kind of, you know, we're talking about this what is, is. It's a deep philosophical question. And really what he was asking was, what is truth? That's what he was asking. And most right. people, did because they didn't understand the nature of truth, said, you know what they did? They said, well... They kind of they can't, they knew he was wrong, but they kind of said, "Well, that's a good question, and I can't make it determine right or wrong." So guess what? I'm going to hit the relative button and not make judgment. I think that was a wow. huge moment for advancing relativism in U.S. culture. That's my opinion of it. So, wow. Truth. Let me add two more things. Truth is truth is transcultural. So two plus two equals four for all people, all places, all times. You know, if you jump off, uh, Rabbi Zacharias speaks about a story. Uh, talks. Uh, he has, tells a story, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist about, you know, uh, and, and he's telling the story. I had a lunch with this guy, and he said, listen, if you get off the, the curb during rush hour and buses are screaming by at high speed, and you're in, it doesn't matter if, whether you're in, you're in New Delhi, right, where India, where relativism is the, is the, is the cultural theme and the religious theme and the right. philosophical theme, and New York City, which it's, you know, Westerns is absolutely – Despite whether you get off the curb in New Delhi or New York, what's going to, you're going to get hit by a bus, right? I mean, it's just it's just because just because you're in India and you think relatively doesn't mean the bus is not going to hit you just because it's true for you and not for him, you know. So uh, it's transcultural, and secondly, it's, right. it's unchanging. Uh, so even though our our views about truth change, the truth doesn't change. Like for example, the Earth was the Church once believed the world was flat. And then they discovered it was round. So it's not that the it's not that the um, the, the the world changed shape. It's that understanding of truth um, changed. That's good. Yeah, that is. And, and you see that me and Melissa had went to uh, and I think it was Gastonia, North Carolina. They did the the pagan festival is what they call it, and it's basically where. Uh, a lot of the New Agers and the witches and stuff like that would get together, and uh, they did this. I don't know if you'd call it a conference. I don't know really what you'd call it, but they they come together on a on one Saturday in October, and uh, they set up booths and uh, all kind of crazy things. But uh, I mean that was just the predominant view. Uh, as you talked with them, you know, what are your views about God? And well, you know, whatever is true for you is. Is true for you, and so I would uh, ask, you know, well, what about the view that the the you know some people believe that the Earth was flat? Well, that was that was true for them. <laughs> but again, you know, it gets back to defining truth. If truth is that which corresponds to reality, then it wasn't true for them because the the Earth wasn't flat. They may have believed it, uh, but it uh, but they were they were simply wrong on that. And so uh, I think you're right. You know, this gives us. Uh, 
with you, you mentioned the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and we, man, we give that out all the time on Ratio Christie. It's probably my favorite book. And uh, it really starts, uh, some of the foundation to build upon is, is truth. You have to have that as, yeah. as a foundation before you can even get going, don't you? You do, and here's a great, next time you go to the Witch Festival, I have a great one for you. So he says, okay, it's relative. So what you do is you look at him and say, you're a witch, right? And he says, yeah. I say, let's go back a couple hundred years ago. You're in North Carolina, man. Uh, you're in Salem. Is it true? Listen, if it's true for me that we should burn witches, then I guess that's okay then, right? That's true. Right? What is he going to say? It's relative? Okay. Pop up on a stake, man. I'm the first guy with the matches. You're going, to, you're going down. Right? What's the guy going to say? You know. Right. That's a good point. You hit him. That's, I call that the Ravi Zechariah return, man. You know, you know some people, you, the roadrunner uh, tactic, and Frank Turk and Dr. Geiser, Frank and Dr. Uh, Turk speak of that. You know, the roadrunner yeah. tactic. It's amazing how the logic is just so not on their side. Maybe maybe you could talk a, a minute or so about that, uh, Steve. What are some of the self-defeating statements? Because you see it really all the time on this on this topic that we're talking about. Give us a few of the self-defeating statements and maybe define what you mean by self-defeating statements. Yeah, you know, when someone says, uh, when someone says, does truth, uh, if someone says that truth is relative, um, or, or if someone says absolute truth doesn't exist, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you could say, are you absolutely sure? Okay, <laughs> and it's a checkmate. So are you, absolute truth doesn't exist, or are you are you absolutely sure? Okay, or how about this one? All truth is relative. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And you can ask them, is that a relative truth? Because if it is, then what they said means nothing. So, and the, and then the best one is, you know, is you, for the college kids, if your professor says, hey, truth doesn't exist, there's there's a lot of things you can say. Well, why am I here in class? Because anything you say is not true. If it's relative. And secondly, right. why is it wrong, or is it wrong for me to cheat on my exam? Right? It's relative. And and why am I even sitting here to learn anything if truth doesn't exist? I'm here just to listen to you babble. So right. yeah, there's a lot of good logical response, and and that's the deal. You know, you you've got a, um, you know, you've got you get you know you've got a lot of uh, a lot of logical responses that you can give, but ultimately. You often, I hate, it's sad to say in today's culture, you almost have to start there to break down some of those barriers to get yeah. to the point that where then you can talk about the truth of God and, and who God is and the existence yeah, of yeah, God. I, I, I was thinking about that. You know, we're on the we're on the campus of uh, Winthrop University, the Rashi of Christie, and and uh, it's just it's, it's amazing that so many of these students, you know, the professor can say something just totally stupid, like there's no such thing as truth. And these guys think, man, that is so philosophically profound. <laughs> and just, or, you know, you even hear Lawrence Krauss, nothing is unstable, and given enough time, nothing will produce something. And, you know, the atheist just wows and just amazed at, at these type of statements. And it's just it's just really a sad commentator, common, commentary on the culture that yeah. such uh, just bad thinking and self-refuting statements can be looked upon as, uh, man, these are some 
you know, the one, one, the one, uh, one hand clapping type of, you know, right. statements that just leave us in awe or something, you know? Well, it takes a lot more faith, I think, to believe that something can come out of nothing. It takes the equal amount of faith. I mean, if right, I mean, we we accept that the, the uh, universe was created ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing. But God can do that. Outside of God, if you want to believe that something came out of nothing, left enough time. Well, first of all, what is time, right? Time outside yeah. of the universe. God is outside this time-space continuum. So enough time. Well, that's a finite thing. Well, any finite thing had to be created by something larger and bigger than itself. And so, yeah, then tell them that. Then they go, oh, ah. <laughs> And then you say, yeah, well, you know, check your mind back in, and let's let's get back in the game. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I've I've heard. It. I remember listening to Shandon Guthrie and Doug Kruger, two philosophy professors, uh, debating the issue. And Doug Kruger was the atheist. He kept pressing Shandon, and he says, you know, basically, you believing that God created the universe is is magic. That's all you're believing in is magic. And and Shandon had replied, well, what you're believing is is worse than magic. Yeah, it is. You know, here you have the, the rabbit coming out of the hat with no magician. Yeah, yeah with no hat. Well, that was, yeah, yeah, that's exactly... So, so they, they say the rabbit came out of the hat, but what's the hat? And where did the hat come from? Well, yeah, it just happened to come exactly out of nothing right. over so much time that happens to be something? Oy. It'll give you, give you mental constipation. Uh, Let me ask you, how do we... Uh, or, or maybe you could you could talk to us a little bit about the biblical view of uh, uh, morality. How does how does moral relativism compare to the biblical view of morality? And real, real quick, yeah. let me give the phone number out again: seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Give us a call, and uh, we will put you right through to uh, Steve Garofalo. Go ahead, Steve. What were you going to say about that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of examples of of moral absolutism in the Bible, but let's start with the Ten Commandments, right? They're not really the Ten Suggestions. I mean, they're a clear example of <laughs> biblical absolutes. I mean, right? if they were relative, they'd be kind of the suggestions, and you can, can kind of a la carte pick what you want. But, you know, God was pretty absolute about giving these Ten Commandments, and they come from the absolute moral God, uh, God uh, lawgiver, which is obviously God. So, um, you know, you have the Ten Commandments. And you have, let's look at Romans 12.9. I mean, it states that love must be sincere. And God calls us to then hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, that's strong language. A lot of people, Christians, have a hard time with saying that God doesn't hate anything. Well, yeah, he does. And he tells us to hate evil. And here it says to hate evil and to cling what is good? Now, good and evil are polar opposites. And uh, philosophically speaking, uh, and obviously evil is just a deprivation of goodness. But, but they're for realistic reasons for people to understand they're polar opposites. I don't want my philosophy friends to get all over me on that one. But it causes <laughs> us to hate, hate what is a deprivation, right? Hate what is evil, and then hate, and then to cling to what is good. So in other words... Hate what hate whatever is a deprivation of goodness, which is God. Whatever is whatever is deprived or depraved rather of God, uh, t- 
to hate that and to cling what is good, which is God, the ultimate moral standard. That's pretty. That's pretty absolute language. It's, that's Romans twelve nine. Psalm ninety one ten says, "Let those who love now different you know you different kinds of now Psalms is wisdom literature, so it's their moral sayings that 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 tell us you know this is how you should be. They're very prescriptive, almost ethical." And he says this, it says this, the psalmist says, 91, uh, Psalm 91.10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate, again, hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So the question, you know, it begs the question, how do we know the wicked from the good with no moral absolutes? <laughs> you know, uh, here's a great here's a great example of that, of, of um, Psalm 9110, uh, again, if, if you look at Sandy Hook, this is the this is the this is the whopper here for the day. Um, you know, when I ask people, do you believe that moral absolutes exist? You know, oh no, you can't say that. Well, first of all, they say no. That's an absolute answer, by the way. So if they say yes, it's an absolute answer. If they say no, they have to. It's an absolute answer. They have to say I don't know, and I can't make that you know judgment, or I can't whatever say so. So I say, well, would you agree that Sandy Hook was wrong? I have yet to find anybody to say that it wasn't. And I say, well, if you could raise that young man from the dead and ask him, was it right for you to kill those kindergartner kids? My guess, and I hate to use such an explicit, terrible example, but it's true. My guess is that he would say, you know, it wasn't right, but it was right for me. I think he'd say in general, yeah. It's not right, but for me, it's right. He would never have done it if he didn't think it was right. <laughs> That's what I think. Right. And so, uh, you know, it, it's here's a good example of of, of that of of, of, um, of I think you know Psalm ninety one ten. And going back to that, says love the Lord and hate evil. You know, if you're listen, if if you're following God and you're following the Lord and you're hating evil, you're not going to do those types of things. Which answers your first question: Why is it important? Well, it's right. funny how. It's sad, actually, but it's but it's but it's ironic how the schools took the Ten Commandments out of the school system, right? Well, think about Ten Commandments. By anybody's stretch, okay? Don't steal. Don't you know? Covet your neighbor's sneakers, <laughs> right? Don't you know? Don't don't lie. Don't you know? Murder. And then they're wondering why kids turn around now and murder, lie, steal, and cheat and covet. Right, and it's amazing to me how that, yeah. that, like they take it out on one hand, then they're then they're then they're looking bewildered, like this is, this is this is how did this ever happen? Well, they just didn't like you, so they didn't you know listen, you know. So, anyways, that's right. that's what I think. Well, good deal. Let's uh, let's do this seven fifteen. Let's go ahead and take a break for two or three minutes and. Uh, when we come back, we will continue the uh, the interview with Steve. And uh, again, phone lines are open seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Give us a call; we'll put you through. And uh, we are discussing moral relativism. And we'll go ahead and uh, take about a two to three minute break, and we will be back. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, is truth true for you, but not for me? I always hear that, and I usually say, 
Is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you and not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. <laughs> I know that can give you intellectual constipation, yeah, yeah, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's actually, there's an easier way of illustrating this. True for you, but not for me. Say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Go to your bank teller one day and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, sir, you only have $47.16 in your account. That's easy to get the money. Bobby, you simply say, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? No, you're not. If it's true, there's only $47.16 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And by the way, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead if he really did, that's true for all people at all times and all places. If he really did. Of course, it's not true if he didn't rise from the dead. And I think the evidence is quite strong that he did. So saying it's true for you but not for me may sound good. It's the mantra of our culture. But it's self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating. And it just doesn't work. Sounds like you're trying to say that truth corresponds to reality. Please. I am. I'm actually <laughs> trying to say that. John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's Word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience... We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. But when you recognize that beginning in 52.13 through 53.12, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation, it was our sins that he bore. It was our, our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes open to receive him as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Savior of the world. Theology Matters, and we are interviewing our guest, Steve Garofalo, and uh, we are looking at the topic of moral relativism, and we've gone through uh, several of the uh, issues on here, and we're going to continue to keep going through them, and uh, we're going to, uh, in a few minutes here, start looking at 
some of the objections, because we definitely know there are some uh, objections that are going to come up. Steve, uh, you there? Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Let me let me ask you this next question, uh, and let me kind of preface it as the question I was going to ask is, how do we know that there are absolute right and absolute wrong? And just to kind of add on to a little bit of that, the person has to have the Bible in order to know right from wrong. So, for example, you hear atheists all the time say things like, um, you know, what, what do you think? If people didn't, you know, read the Bible, they would go around and start killing people and, you know, raping women yeah. and this type of thing. So how do we know right and wrong? And does a person have to read the Bible to know right and wrong? It's a very, very good question. Um, no. People don't have to read the Bible to know wrong. You have uh there's there's two books of <clears throat> there's two books of Revelation. You have you have the Bible is the first book. You have the you have the Bible, which is really special revelation. It's God's direct word to us. Then you got nature's general revelation, and general revelation is how we see God in nature, right? Through the laws of logic, through the trees, through the, the tides, the sun, the moon, just the, the creation uh, account altogether, the complexity of human beings. The same things that some of your friends, some of our friends say, you know, came from nothing. So that's called nature's law. The founders of, 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 of our country call that nature's law. And so, uh, and that gets into first principles and logic. But, but nature's law. Uh, well, I'll get up to that in a minute. Let me talk about the uh, first principles. So, or, or, or Romans. If you go to Romans, um, uh, if you go, if you if you go to Romans chapters one and chapters two, you'll see this very well described. But, but it, it, you know, the Apostle Paul says uh, says that you know the Jews had the law. Uh, had the law written, right? They had law, they had scripture uh, from from the Old Testament, what we we would call the Old Testament scriptures now. But, but and then he said, but to the Gentile, he was a law unto himself. And so, what did he mean by that? You know, I mean, you have you have now you have the Gentile who didn't have the written law, didn't didn't go to synagogue, he didn't didn't have those scriptures, but somehow he knows the Gentile. And this goes in. Don't forget in the Old Testament. In the sense of, of, of Judaism, anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. So a Muslim's a Gentile. <laughs> you know, we're a Gentile. Anybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. That's kind of the way it is. It's Jew or you're a Gentile. So, you know, how did how do how do we know you know how do we know that the um, how do we know that that is you know that, that is you know that, that that things are right or wrong? Now think about that in the context of every single culture in the whole entire world knows that that is the case okay and and i have yet to i have yet to um see a culture where murder is accepted as right or rape is accepted as right i'm not saying there's not cultures like and people will usually say well islam you know they think it's right to fly planes into large buildings and kill people well that's a different story from the sense that jihad and martyrdom or a sense of, of salvation for them. Uh, outside of that, if you go over to the Middle East and you kill somebody, it's doubtful they'll even go to court. I mean, in most cases, the family member is going to just, is going to kill you <laughs> out of revenge. 
and that's their moral code. But they still understand that certain things are, are wrong, like raping their wives or murdering, murdering them. It's just that it's a different, different perspective on that. But, but they don't accept those things. So you have nature's law. Now, how do we know, how do we know that? Um, and, and, and there's things called first principles. And this is really not that. First principles are not, um, are really not that technical. I remember in seminary when I learned first principles, and believe it or not, it was there, but I never heard of any of this in, in, in my undergrad at University of Maryland. But first principles are the process of, by which we, we discover all truths about the world. Now, I will say this, that every single person that's listening today and their children, including their children, understand first principles. And there's three simple ones I'll give you. The law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of excluded middle. Now, let me give you an example uh, of what I'm... Now, let me go back and I'll just lay one more preface here. First principles are the process of discovering truth, for example, begins with self-evident laws of logic. In other words, we can't know anything without knowing something first. And, and, and this will become clear in a minute. Um, they're, just inherent, they're just inherent in our nature. So we have the law of identity, right? A thing must be identical to itself. If it were not, then it would not be itself. Like, for example, theologically or biblically speaking, what is God and who is God? So we can describe God. In the Bible, we describe him by his attributes, and we can describe him metaphysically. He's pure spirit, okay, for example. He's justice. He's love. He's um, infinite. You know, that gives you a good picture of who God is. Now, it, right, we can say, okay, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is, in fact, part of the Trinity. So, in fact, he is God, okay? And um, if you then look at that and you look at Islam and you look at Muhammad and you look at Allah, okay, they're different in their description. Their identity is very different, as is if you want to go to Hinduism and you want to look at the oneness, okay? Or if you look at atheism, um, there is no God at all. They just reject it all. So all those things that you just described all have a certain identity. Let me just break that down a little more clear. If you have a coin in your pocket, and it's a nickel, a dime, and a quarter, how do you know one from the other? Because it has its own identity. It's a different shape. It looks different. It says different things on it. Even though they may be similar, they're all coin, they're all changed. So something must be identical to itself. So what I typically do is, you know, listen, if, you, if I had a five-year-old in front of me, and I looked at her and I said, is that, I did this once in a talk, I said, this is really simple stuff. I remember when I first heard it, I almost fell out of my chair, I thought it was so, so deep and technical, <laughs> but it's not. I said, listen, so I, I pulled my, my friend's little daughter, I said, hey, sweetie, how you doing? She goes, good. I said, is that your mommy next to you? And she goes, yeah, that's my mommy. I said, well, let me ask you another question. Is that your mommy and not your mommy at the same time? She looked at me like, you're crazy? Uh, rightfully so. And she said, that's my mommy, you know? Because why? Because she can see and look at it and see that's her mommy. So um, something must be identical to itself in many different levels. And so an entity without uh, an, an entity without an identity, something without an identity cannot exist or it would be nothing. So when we just talk about God, you know, we say, so when you talk about morality, Morality has to is, is pretty long. Now you have the law of non-contradiction, and that says something can't mm -hmm. be uh, that contradictory claims cannot both be true, at, uh, cannot be true at the same time 
and uh, I'm sorry, it says that contradictory claims cannot be true at the same time and in the same sense. So something can't be right and wrong at the same time. That would be relativism. All right, it has okay. to be true. But it can't be right and it can't be wrong. It can't be true and it can't be false. All right, the world can't be flat and it can't be round. It has to be one or the other. You know, I'll right. quote Avicenna, and if you remember him, famous Muslim philosopher, he said, anyone who denies the law of God contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as to not be beaten, and that to be burned is and to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. So this is the law of yeah. non-contradiction. And then you have the law of excluded middle. Either God exists or he does not. Either murder is right or murder is not right. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he did not rise from the dead. Okay, either morality is absolute or it's not absolute. But it can't be absolute and not absolute or it can't be absolute and relative at the same time. It has to be one or the other. So yeah, those are powerful, uh, powerful tools. Very, very powerful tools. With the with the uh, with the law of excluded uh, middle, I guess if you were to, um, well, so yeah. So if Jesus says that he's the only way to heaven, then uh, contrary to the claim that uh, Christians are bigots for saying that uh, Christianity is the only or Christ is the only true way to heaven. That would just be logical, wouldn't it? Yeah, and they and they all say the same thing, you know. I mean, who is Christ? Law right. of identity. You could have done about law of non-contradiction. It can't. He can't be God and not God at the same time. And then the law of excluded middle. Just you're right. He either is God or he's not God. But there's no other alternatives. You're you're absolutely right. So you know yeah, that's, that's why. You know, I think that was the premise opening the opening statement that Josh McDowell made and you know more than a carpenter you know gee whiz I mean he was either a lunatic or a liar I mean you know he or he was the son of God I mean he, you know he he you know he he just uh you know that logic logic dictates that he what he is or what he is not is to be clear yeah I, I love that because it really it gets right to the point of the, of the matter it's not uh it's not bigotry folks it is just uh it's just being logical, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, uh, and, and and logic is where you need to start today. Unfortunately, you have to start. It's sad. If you go back 30 years, could then share the love of Jesus Christ by just the four spiritual laws. But you cannot do that anymore. You have to establish what truth is and does it exist in many cases, not all cases, but once you do that, because you have to do that in effort to to um, to be able to uh, establish if God exists and who God is, right? Truthfully, is it true that God exists? Well, if you don't, if you, if you can't define if truth exists, then how can you say it's true that God exists? So once you've established it's truth and it's true that God exists, and then you know who God is, then you can move to validating the New Testament scriptures and showing why the New Testament is so superior by like a landslide as to any other ancient document, any manuscripts, and why miracles can be true. That's where a lot of our, high, our college and high school kids are getting tripped up. Um, but and So you can't get there until you get the first two, but once you get that established, then you can talk about Jesus Christ. Seriously. Right. You know, you, you got it. It's just... 
the apologist task or the, the evangelist task using apologetics is can be daunting. I mean, you know, the old days, it's not about saying, man, you're right. You know, in the old days, people were pretty honest. Man, you're right. I shouldn't be doing those things. You can still get there. You know, but yeah. you get you do have to, you know, you still you have to answer the philosophy and the theology and then the science and everything else. Absolutely, yeah, because we just live in a in an age now that is just ripe with with skepticism. Let me ask you this: we we touched on this uh, a little bit before, and then after this, we we can jump into some of the objections. Um, and like I said, I think you, you touched on this a little at the beginning. Tell us again: what is the difference between morals and values? I think Dr. Craig also makes this. Uh, distinction in reasonable faith and, and on guard. Tell, tell us, what, what is the difference between morals and values? Yeah, I kind of answered that question. Uh, I'll answer it from a try of a simplistic, a simplistic position, uh, in other words, yeah. the way that I understand it. So I think morals are, are, um, morals are, prescri- are prescriptive. They're what we ought to do and it flows out of the good moral law giver God. So it's duty-driven, and, and it's an unchangeable thing. So values, on the other hand, can rest upon morals, but, but flow out of a good moral law giver. In other words, God, in many cases. Right. In other words, you have family values, you have cultural values, you have religious values that don't necessarily right. reflect the nature of God. Now, now values are good in as much as they follow God's decrees and God's 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 moral laws. And um, but when they don't line up, then they're wrong. You have a lot of cultures. You know, I mean, there are certain things you, that that are not necessarily right or wrong. If you like chocolate and I like vanilla, that's true. That's okay. Right. That's ice cream. That's not a. There's no moral. There's that's that's not a moral issue. That's a taste issue. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, you see right. that? Something like chocolate, like vanilla. So, you know, it doesn't matter. So it's right for you. It's not for me. No, that's a category mistake. You know, what you like right. and morality are two different are two different categories of things. And I would say values in, 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 are much like that. I don't know if does that, does that yeah, answer you know, the question. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. I remember Dr. Craig saying something to the effect of, you know, being a doctor would be a good thing, right? That would be a, be a good thing for people to be doctors and, and save people's lives. Uh, but if we decided, for example, not to be a doctor, then that wouldn't be somehow immoral, right? So you can have, have and I guess that would fall into the values uh, thing that, you, that you're talking about as far as like with culture and that there's, there's good things we can do, uh, but if we don't do them, it wouldn't be considered immoral necessarily. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. From am I on the right track here? You are, you are. I think speaking of the doctor, um, I think speaking of the doctor, you know, it depends on what the doctor does. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if he's abortion doctor, then you know, then you're right. You know, you got a problem there. Um, yeah. Have, uh, I don't. You know, I don't really look at them as doctors. They're more. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Really and, saving people. <laughs> yeah, you're but, you're absolutely uh, right, and. Uh, you know, and so that. Uh, but th- does that answer question? Did I, I miss yeah. something? Yeah. Yep. Yep. That uh, a- absolutely does. I I know sometimes that is a that is a sticking point and kind of confuses uh, people with the difference between morals and values. So very very good job. And uh, let's let's look at some of the objections now because you know you know they're going to come when we start saying 
things like, uh, you know, truth is objective or morality is, is objective. One of the objections that come is that morality is a product of evolution that ensures the survival of the race. seems like everything can just kind of be attributed to evolution, you know, origin of the universe, origin of life, fine-tuning of the universe, and now morals. How do you respond yeah. to that? Well, first of all, there's no evidence for the theory in the first place, uh, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, progressivism. Yeah, progressivism is simply evolution gone wild. I mean... It's like, okay, I mean, now you got people who say that, you know, that the Constitution is a living document. Well, that's, that's just a form of evolution or progressivism, that something's evolving constantly. I mean, the problem with progressivism and was, is that they don't know where they're progressing to. Seriously. I don't, I'm, I'm not being funny. They really don't. They just know where the, you know, they think it, it goes back to humanism. Secular humanism just believes that mankind is always going to solve the problem. He, we're smart. We're always going to find new energy sources, and the world is. You know, they kind of take the second law of thermodynamics and the first law of thermodynamics, and they kind of flush in the toilet, you know, and the general law of, therm, of relativity, and saying, you know, gee whiz, the universe is wearing down. Anything that's any you know, the world is winding down. Power is being released, and so. Um, it, that goes against the whole idea of self-perpetuating energy or self-perpetuating life. They just see it like it goes on forever. So, it, you know, and the point of the universe, if it was wound up or if it's winding down, it mandates someone had to wind it up. So you tell me who that is. So there's no evidence for the theory uh, that morality is a product of evolution. Uh, and, and, and secondly, an absolute duty is one that is binding to all persons in all times and all places. Hence, it is not something that, like, evolves from finite human beings, but something that, that's outside the finite terms. In other words, we're created by something greater than us. Anything that's created must be created by something greater than us. So it, uh, it, it's, 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 it's not mankind who, who determines... Uh, who determines... Uh, morality but it's god i mean he's the un, he's the only unmovable mover he's god he determines morality his ways never change in in, in for all infinite infinite infinity which is be way well beyond outside the time space continuum how we think of years or minutes or seconds it'll never change that murder will ever be right ever 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 so man moves to god in his absolutes it's not god who moves to man you dr geiser speaks of the man in the pillar or the, the man walking into the wind. I don't know if you've heard that. You know, you'll have the, basically the, the, the progressive who who's believes that morality is, has, is, is based on evolution. Um, besides the point they don't really know what they're talking about or where they're going, you know, they believe that they, they deny the fact that, that, okay, the wind's blowing. So you're facing into the wind, and you say, the wind is in my face. And then they, what they'll do is they'll turn around, right, and the wind's on their back, and they'll say, you see, God is on my back. So, you know, it's not what you said, but, it's, but who moved? You, not God. So God doesn't move, you know, he's, he's absolute. So what, what's some of the problems? Yeah, sorry about that. I mean, didn't yeah. mean to cut you off and finish what you were saying. Yeah, I'm finished. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. No, you're fine. I was just going to say, so what are some of the problems with saying that uh, that man is, is standard? I mean, right off, 
right off the bat, I think of uh, issues like slavery or the Holocaust or other issues. Yeah. Uh, if, if those are just kind of, uh, if man determines right and wrong, then I guess they, back then, then it wouldn't have really been, been wrong in any objective sense. Huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, if if man is the measure of all things, then it really you can't have no complaint. It's whoever is in power then determines that standard. All right. I mean, what else? You have two options. Yeah. I mean, it's, you have. There's no third options. It, it's the total. Here's your logic again. Your law of excluded middle. I mean, really. I mean, you know, it's either God or it's it, your only other option. Really, in a sense, is God or man in this case. I mean, there is no third option. Um, you know, God. If it's if you delete God from the equation, first of all, you can't. But if you want to do it philosophically, theologically, sociologically, or however, gov- governmentally, if that's a word. See, I'm making words up now. Um, <laughs> tell them I'm a morning guy, right? So, 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 if if you want to, if you want to, uh, um, if you want to apply that, uh, oh man, what, where was I at now? See, I got off on, on here. Took a break. The government, was I, the government, the governmentally, it's a pretty off. The governmentally, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. You were you were talking about uh, so just the need for yeah. God. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So if you've got yeah. So if you if you uh, the Italianness is coming out of me, and I'm a morning guy, so you know this is what happens. Uh, <laughs> the hands are moving. You need you can that see espresso. That. Oh, jeez. So so what happens is is if you once you take God out of the equation in your own mind first of all you don't take god out of the equation but by doing that you do you leave you leave open to any institution to then become godless and right. once you take that out you really it's whoever it's funny how in today's world we think of a democracy as you know everything is driven by polls like i mean that's crazy so you, you either have god-driven leadership which is saying i'm going to do something okay i was elected by the people to do the right thing but you can't override God's ways. I mean, that's the way the country ran for a couple hundred years, and it ran pretty doggone good. Because as soon as you do that, they like, well, you know, majority of people in this part of Colorado want to legalize marijuana. You know, it doesn't matter if it's going to create crime and kill people and get young people addicted. It's their right to freedom. Right. It's a right Roe v. Wade to have an abortion. Okay, this is a woman's body. I mean, after a while, that's relativism. I mean, you know, listen, don't right. tell me what to do. And then what they do is they turn around and mandate it, in a law, like it's something absolute. So, anyways. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's does that the make problem. Sense? Because, yeah, that, absolutely. Because, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, we don't, want, we don't want man to be the one that calls the shots because you get some real, you know, terrible, terrible people. So like Hitler or Saddam Hussein or, or other, you know, terrible leaders. And if you don't have that objective moral standard and it's, just evolution or might makes right, uh, then, you know, it yeah. becomes I'll ask the atheist, you know, if they, if they make a law in the United States that it's okay to kill all atheists, <laughs> you know, will, will that yeah. be okay because the majority says so? You know, yeah, absolutely. That's a great, that is a great point, uh, Devin. And, you know, I, I, it's funny, I talk to a lot of good people and, and really educated, highly educated people, and it never seems to astound me when I, when you know, we talk about multiculturalism. My, I'm the son of an immigrant. My father came here in a boat from Italy, from Sicily. Didn't speak any English, and 
and and um, you know came here for a better better life and and so you know when we talk about multiculturalism, I think there's good things about multiculturalism. But I you know I come from New York and Washington D.C. where you know I have, I have friends of just about every color, shade, you name it, ethnicity, religious background, and we all got along pretty good. But we also lived by a common set of laws <laughs> that kept us all. You know, it's very different than here than us being. If we would have been friends out in Palestine or who are friends out in, in in Russia, it probably would look very different. You know, it wouldn't be very much right. the same. And 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 when you talk about law, and we cover quite a bit of that in the book, you know, when you start making man the measure of all things, you just break down the rule of law. You do. I mean, look at today. Now they're exempt unions from from health care. Now, uh, this you know the, the, from the from the fee from the penalty. You know, so I'm, I'm not picking on health care. I'm just saying when right. the law starts treating one people group differently than the other, and I mean, that's not what it's – it's everything you're not supposed to do is treat one people group differently than the other, or you have protected classes. You know, why is one class protected? If you're really even, um, you got to let that work it out through the system. You know, the civil rights movement was good from the perspective of it, that it gave women and it gave – you know, African Americans the right to vote. That is a good thing, but from the perspective that you start treating, you know, people in this, into these little blocks, like okay, you know, you look at the elections. Well, you've got to win the young, you know, minivan mommies, you know, whatever. Well, you've got to win the black vote or the Hispanic vote, you know, or the the white evangelical vote or something like that. You shouldn't be that way. You should just you have to you should be you have to win the hearts of the voter. That you shouldn't break right. people down. I mean, it's amazing how how politics has this 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 misunderstanding. They've 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 completely bamboozled the public to think that it's a good thing when they've completely segregated society in these little boxes. You know themselves. You know, but you have special right. rights. You have to hire this per. You have to have X amount of this people or X amount of that people. Listen, the guy doesn't want to. Let the people judge that. You know, and um, in, 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 and I'm not for, for employment. That's kind of a different subject. But you know, you just can't create all these laws to protect one and not the other, and, unless you really you have a lot of harm. So, because what you do in the end, end run is that you then you then made yourself the ultimate Almighty God. I mean, God, the Constitution calls for all mankind and all women to be created equal. We're all, they, and that is God-given truth. All men and all women of all colors and races are created equal. None is greater than the other. None is smarter than the other as a, as a, right. as a race or whatever you want to say. But but for the government to get involved with that, when you start doing that, you, you see what happens. It goes awry, and, and and then next thing you know, the standard is the government. And the government now is saying, that, you know, you you know they're teaching same-sex marriage or whatever in, in schools and homosexuality in schools, yet you are not allowed to teach anything about the Bible. Now, if they were fair, why can't you teach side by side both of them? Why why can you only teach evolution but you cannot teach creationism? Why not allow both? Right. right. You know. Yeah, at least uh yeah, yeah, let them let them let them look at the issues and decide for themselves. So, all right, we got about 13 minutes left. 7605423907 Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Call in, and we'll put you through to Steve and uh, deal with your question or comment on uh, moral relativism. Steve, let me ask you this question because you know it's going to come up. 
you hear this all the time. In fact, uh, Dr. Turk and Geisler uh, wrote a book on this, and I, I actually I, I picked this book. It's one of my classes at SES. We had to pick a book and do a whole book review on it, and I picked the book uh, Legislating Morality. I read yes. it probably three or four times. I just love that book. Awesome Seems like book. when those two get yep. together, man, those guys could write some good books. <laughs> yes, but, they can. Uh, <laughs> The question comes up, and the charge is going to be, well, you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate yep. morality. How do, you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, it, uh, well, nothing's further from the truth. We're always legislating morality. There's not one law. Not a, there's not a single law that does not legislate morality. Um, for example, um, a stop sign, right? It's it, simple as a stop sign is. That legislates morality. Uh for an example, you yeah, I mean, if you're going to stop, there's a reason why the stop sign exists. It's a symbol, and there's law behind it, and there's authority. But the reason for that is that they don't want you to get harmed physically or have property damage or have a loss of life. That's let, Those are moral issues. Or, for example, uh, you know, I, I believe it's good for us to um, – be able to help people who are disadvantaged from the perspective of a guy's got you know one arm. <laughs> you know, we should yeah. we should try to help the guy you know where we can. But when it comes to I mean, you look at the welfare system right now and it's so abused. You have people now they're now they're now they're actually found the loophole in the law out in Colorado where they're taking their welfare check and buying marijuana. Seriously, I'm totally serious. Uh, yeah. yeah, because some of this because some of the places where they sell marijuana. Are places that are that are that are also grocery stores. So technically, that's wow. legal. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's so is everything. Every every piece of legislation legislates morality. Do you let welfare people go out and buy you know soda and candy? Is that is that a moral thing, for example, as opposed to just eating oh. eating food they should eat? And so and you go on and so on and so forth. But it, legislating morality has always been. Um, it, it, every, there's not you always you, you can't. The question, real question, is whose morality are you going to are you going to legislate? That's the real question. That is, that is absolutely the real question. Well, let me let me ask you this one. We'll give you a final uh, objection here. Yep. A lot of the atheists are going to say the God of the Bible is a moral relativist. He says, for example, don't murder, and yet there's instances where God Himself is wiping out whole peoples and uh, women, animals, babies. I mean, it doesn't matter. Children. So how how does God uh, get to have a double standard? If, uh, yeah. if the laws are absolute and unchanging, etc., then how come God does not have to abide by them? Yeah, the word the word used in the Ten Commandments actually is "Thou shalt not kill." But if you look at it in context, it means murder. So just so I want to just clarify that if anybody wants to put that up there. If you, a lot of times you can say something, like, and you have to look at the context of the word, right? If I'm in yeah. Hawaii and, I mean, I'm sorry, if I'm in California, what is the word, like, what does the word woe mean? probably means something different than it does in Wyoming. We have cowboys, and they go, whoa, because the course, right? You got a horse, and he's, yeah. you want to slow him down. You go to Hawaii, I mean, uh, California, and I keep saying that. And you say, whoa, right, okay, here comes a big wave, whoa, or, you know, a hot chick walks by, whoa, or, you know, hey, whoa, you almost get hit by a car. 
So you have to look at what words mean in the context of what they mean. So, but to answer your question, so uh, God doesn't murder. Murder is murder connotes an injustice. Uh, in other words, if I go out and I take an innocent life, uh, that's murder. Right? My, you know, for example, guy makes me angry and I go out and, and, and kill him with a candlestick or something or a gun or whatever. That's that's injustice. Now, if the if the government then if the government the guy who's a mass murderer and they put him through what we call a bicameral system in this country. In other words, you really have to face two trials and in, in, in essence, you have to you have to face a trial first. You have to go through kind of a mini trial to determine are you eligible for death penalty. Then the government can then put you on trial for the death penalty, and then the government can righteously subject you to the death penalty. But the government doesn't murder you; they kill you. Ooh, in other words, right. they why? What's the difference? And this is the true where where we're going with this. Is it is it first of all God gives the government the right to administer the death penalty. Now, governments, that doesn't mean every time a government kills somebody that it's not murder, okay? So if you have, like, uh, the the Nazi camps, that's murder. That's not <laughs> – because the people were innocent. So when you when you kill right. somebody knowing that they're innocent, you've just murdered somebody, okay? So right, that's how whether it's, it's but, the but, law or not, right. Yeah, but ultimately God is just. I mean, if you go through the, there's a lot of Old Testament. You're right, where God brings judgment on the Canaanites and you know all the all the different types that are out there. And uh, and but the bottom line is, if you look at it, it's just like it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, all right. I mean, when and, and, and you have Abraham, you know, um, uh, uh, negotiating, or and you have if you look at the Old Testament. God is very clear that listen, there's really none that are just there, mm-hmm. and that's the that's and right. that's the deal. I mean, yeah, I mean, when when you have none that are just, if God sees an unjust people and they're all unjust, He has a right to wipe them out. You know, He did it with the flood, He did it in Sodom and Gomorrah, and He did it, great, you know, He did it over and over with the Jews. And He's going to do it again. He is going to do it again in the end days, absolutely. But even if you look at, it's interesting if you look at, yeah, if you go to the end times and you look at, you know, seven years. If you if you're not a preterist and you believe in no, seven years tribulation, <laughs> even if you do, even if you're a preterist, you know, and, and you know, you, you God is still giving you time to repent, you know. And if you right, believe in a seven right. year tribulation, which I do, then even so, you know, you're going to face hell on earth. But and you may get persecuted, and you may even get killed for your faith. At the end of the day, God has given you a chance. So God gives everybody a chance. I mean, you see Muslims right. today come to Christ, right? And their testimonies are just are just are just phenomenal. So, but God, the, God has a right. God doesn't kill anybody unjustly. I don't believe He takes a single life unjustly. And He has that authority. He's God. We don't have the right to take an unjust person's life. For example, take abortion, for example. The government has sanctioned that as legal, okay, or in their eyes, right, abortion. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I don't have the right to go to the abortion doctor and kill him in self-defense of the baby. It's an ethical question because the, the government has sanctioned that 
as right. It doesn't mean it's right, but I don't have the authority to go kill the, the abortion doctor. So that would be wrong. That would be murder. So, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a tough question. Some people are going to have to grapple with that. But, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense to you. But God has the authority. Yeah, we do not have the authority. But even, even though he does have the authority, he's not some moral monster, as the book cover, you know, states. It's that he does, you know, whenever he does uh, take out people, per se, when he when he casts the death penalty onto him and, and, and uses the Jews, or he does otherwise supernaturally, he does so in a way that is out of justice. They're unjust, uh, and, and he has the, the, the power and he has the, in his nature, and he has the right to do so. He could do that with us if he wants to. That's right. Yeah, absolutely could. Well, let's, uh, let's do this, brother. We are at the end of our time. Uh, take 30 seconds. How can we get a hold of your book? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right for you, but not for me, a response to moral relativism. The best place to go is go right to Amazon.com. And, uh, and Steve Gere follows the author, and Dr. Norman Geiser wrote the forward on it. And uh, you can also go to TriedStonePublishing.com if you wish. It's T-R-I-E-D-S-T-O-N-E, TriedStonePublishing.com. Either there or Amazon's fine, but thank you very much. Thank, thank you Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. What I'll do is I will go ahead and put the link up on our Facebook page as well and uh, share that so people can who have liked our, our Facebook page, you guys will get the link to the book. And uh, I highly, you know, highly recommend you guys get this book. It's very good. These these are big issues, and some of them are tough and weighty. And uh, you know, Steve does a great job, kind of walking us through the landmine uh, that is that is some of these issues. So, Steve, really appreciate you being on the show, and look forward to having you back in the near future, hopefully. Yeah, I appreciate that, Devin, and uh, I I look forward to being back. And you just. Uh... You do me a favor and you say hello to your lovely wife and your daughter for me. And yes, uh, they're actually uh, they're at the uh, the atheist humanist meeting tonight. They uh, they meet believe, once a no month. No kidding. Yeah, they meet once a month and they uh, they do a different topic. And so tonight they're talking about certainty. And uh, we we go to this uh, it's a philosophy club there in Charlotte at Amelie's. And uh, for a while it was me, Melissa. Ellie and one other girl, uh, was a Christian, were showing up with about twelve atheists and uh, oh engaging them in dialogue. And so the the president of the uh, the atheist club there invited us to come out. So Melissa and uh, and Diana Newman actually went there tonight, and Ellie's with them. So I'm sure we'll have some good good stories about that, and uh, look look forward to hearing how that all went. But uh, yes, sir, we will have you back. And uh, appreciate you being on the show, my man. Thank you, Devin. Look forward to being back, and um, and I appreciate that, my brother. God bless you, and God bless all you and Melissa are doing. It's it's awesome impact that you're having, so we appreciate that. I appreciate it, man. And uh, we'll talk again. God bless. Thank you. All, right. all right, folks, join us. Uh, actually, next week we're going to have a rerun uh, because uh, we have some pan where he basically answered atheist questions uh, for over an hour, for almost two hours, I think. It's very good. 
And the week after that, uh, my wife will be moderating the debate uh, between Matt Dillahunty and Clinton Wilcox on the topic of abortion. That'll be an hour and a half debate with cross-examination and 30 minutes for questions. So we look forward to that. Appreciate you guys listening in. And I uh, would ask that you tune in again and have a great week. God bless. Secular rap lyrics. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Yeah. Aristotle in the man.